You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? This whole party. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? This whole party. Welcome to Down with D and D. My name is Sean Merwin, and I am joined, thankfully, again by Teos Abadia, who keeps coming back, regardless of the beating he takes every week. Thanks I'm, for I'm required to. I'm required <laughs> to in this legal document I signed with some, is it as Modius? As, yeah. I'm not sure how you pronounce yeah, it. it you, the accent's on the E. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad that I had my uh, attorney, Mr. Asmo, get you to, sign, to, 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 to sign that contract. So you have to keep coming back. But since yeah. you're here uh, and your soul's at stake, we may as well do a show. <laughs> you got to have goals. You know, exactly. Exactly. Small things. So let's get on with the news, because yet again, we have a lot of news to get through. Uh, the first thing we want to do is give a quick Kickstarter check in on a couple Kickstarters we're keeping an eye on. Yeah, we have the Three Musketeers. Um, we reviewed this two episodes ago, I believe. And it is really close. It ends October 30, so you have a few days to get on it. This is a project Sean and I really believe in. The people are amazing. It's almost like you don't say what Sean has worked on. You would maybe try to find something he hasn't worked on for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Or for Scott, I think I said Sean. Scott, yeah, so. right? Scott Fitzgerald Gray yeah. has done so much for 5th edition. So if you are a fan of 5th edition, you really want to think about backing this. At least click on the link in the show notes. Check out uh, search for Kickstarter Three Musketeers. Take a look at it. It's a great project, and it could really need your help. It's very close to the finish line. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, if you haven't read the Three Musketeers, you really should. And there probably is no better way to do it in this day and age than to read it the way that Scott has done its uh, its edit, sort of rewritten it for modern times, along with some incredible art by. Another person that we've worked with in the past. Yeah, Aviv Orr. Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, just amazing work by Aviv. And, and I've commissioned her in the past to do work. It's incredible, really, really gifted. And so, those two worlds coming together, please do take a look at it. They can use your help. Yep. And another Kickstarter that has only a few days left, but is close to funding, is Nazi Dracula Must Die. It is a 5e modern game or modern in terms of World War II, where you can fight Dracula along with the Axis of Evil, the original yeah. Axis of Evil, the Axis. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it's just, you know, this is a project that we also want to highlight because not only are there great people on the team, but they are paying the freelancers on this team a great rate. And that's really nice to see, and we'd love to see that be a success. This one ends October 29th, so October 30 for Three Musketeers, October 29th for Nazi Dracula Must Die. Yep, so check those out if you can. And, oh, speaking of things that are out, DDAL 10-01, The Frozen North, the uh, second adventure of Season 10, the first one being 10-00, which was an introduction to Season 10. This is the first official adventure in the storyline for Adventures League. It is called The Frozen North, written by page lightman and available on the dm's guild yeah and we talked about this back when um D, &D I think it was celebration yeah came out. yeah great adventure i highly recommend it it's yep. a fun you know and we've said that the um the rhyme of the frost maiden does not have a sort of arriving in icewind dale adventure and this is one way that you can provide it uh yep. 10 also both of those are great ways to say you know what let's start out somewhere else and arrive at, you know cover the arrival into the icewind Dale region yep. great so region. it's blurb is an avalanche strands you and your allies in the treacherous spine of the world and a relentless blizzard is quickly blowing away all hope of survival gathering the surviving members of your caravan and strike out for shelter strike out for life part one of the plague of ancients series of adventures just a quick note Pretend zero, zero, if you played it, it's four one-hour adventures, and they're discrete adventures. You can play them in any order. You can play them separately. Ten zero one in the adventure, it is broken up into one-hour segments, 
but it is a complete story. So you want to play them in order if at all possible. Um, if you play them out of order, it will, you'll have sure. to pretend you you went back in time because uh, it definitely plays out in order. That's a great point. I was going to say that um, 1001, the Frozen North, uses these, um, what is it, not companion rules. Is it companion? Uh, sidekick. Sidekick, yes. It uses sidekick rules or, uh, to some extent. And so that's a fun way to get a look towards where Tasha's going to be providing more of that uh, mm -hmm. you know, strength and rules. So that's yep. a nice way to, to preview that that uh, sidekick concept. Yep. And, and if we're ever at a point where we don't have... 20 hours worth of industry news all at once uh, maybe we'll even look at the adventure as a whole and talk about it yeah. uh, but for now we'll just let the people out there enjoy it and did you want to talk about liars night for the adventures league yeah we can just very quickly mention this dnd adventures league has done this uh for now i think this might be the second third year uh, they're doing what's called liars night and it's liars night is a, a holiday from the forgotten realms world and so they do some version of it where in encouraging people to play and for playing you get something extra and so like previous years the official site for the dnd adventures league has a bunch of pdfs you can download and they have little special like short encounters that you can drop into any al adventure that you're running and you can of course use these in your home game so hey free random encounters and the this time they have the rewards are sort of embedded in there mm -hmm. And so after the encounter, then you can give a fun sort of usually temporary or minor reward that everybody gets some small magic items, something like that. Uh, and they also have a pumpkin carving contest going on this year that you can win stuff by doing that. Yep. So the community folks at uh, the Adventures League are hard at work in building community. They do a great job at it. And uh, Liar's Night is just one of the many things they do to, to keep that going. And speaking of Adventures League, Let's talk for a second about DDAL Double Aught 13, Knuckleheads and Other Such Curiosities, A Traveler's Guide to Icewind Dale. This is a product that is also up on the DMs Guild, created by the Adventures League administrators. So if you like Pip Yap's Guide or any of those other products that the Adventures League admins worked on, this is going to be right up your alley. It contains many things, uh, new Arctic-themed subclasses, background spells, magic items. New monsters, afflictions, herbs, terrain, and weather rules for the DM. In addition, there are over 60 random encounters or expanded encounters. And there are also two full D&D AL legal adventures. One for the Forgotten Realms campaign and one for the Oracle of War campaign. Very cool. We've been getting a lot of questions about, well, is this legal for Adventures League? The adventures are, the encounters are, all, all of it is, except for chapters two and five, which are the player-facing things so you can use chapters two and five if you have campaign documentation for it so that there might be rewards coming up at the end of adventures or for contests or for things like that that would give your adventures league character access to chapters two and five so keep an eye out for that you want to talk about dragon plus you go for it Teos. all right so dragon plus is uh, your sort of strange permutation version of the old dragon magazine and sometimes Dungeon Magazine, and it is available on the web or on your mobile device. And this issue is all about Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Jeremy Crawford talks about what's in the product, gives some insights into it. It's a nice job of collecting things that have been said elsewhere. I don't think there's too much that's really truly new, but it does a good job of reviewing all of the content in there, subclasses, artificial reprint and expansion, character origins without racial abilities, sidekicks, group patrons, puzzles tattoos supernatural environments you know there's there's a little bit there talking about all of it it also says that the focus narratively on this book the way that we had xanathar's guide to everything where xanathar was giving insights in, in, in the sidebars on all these different things kind of, you know humorous comments this is done from the perspective of tasha before she became the demigod like figure named igwill so i think she's a little less maybe less evil in, the, in this uh version so we get we get her notes before she's fully gone on to the dark side i guess right yep and uh i haven't read it yet so i think that there is something about beetle and grim products or something yeah, that reminds us of they highlight it's sort of funny because the, the first thing they cover sort of this point this uh dragon plus is, is heavily on promotion and so one of the things it does is it talks about how curse of stride revamped revamped is coming out or revamped if you want to throw in an accent 
Uh, <laughs> it's coming out October 20th for 100 bucks, And it's a version of Curse of Strahd that's full of extras. And it very much reminds you of Beetle and Grimm products. And then if you virtually flip the page, you get to, oh, look, Beetle and Grimm's has a version. <laughs> the legendary edition of Curse of Strahd. Oh, boy. Uh, and this thing is 350 bucks, and you get, I mean, you name it, you get new maps, including a new regional map and a map of every single part of the castle that's to scale. Now, now the question, though, is, is there finger puppets? Oh, yes, there are <laughs> finger puppets included. Uh, I believe it's one for each finger based on the marketing picture I saw. Nice. Um, so, so if you need your finger puppet fix in your D&D game, uh, Beatles and Beetle and Grimm now has you covered. Yeah, they've got you. So if you really love Stride, you know, just set aside 350 plus 100, mm-hmm. and now you can get everything, the full Stride. You, you, that's it. You, you'll have the full Stride. You, he went the full Stride. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Find yourself a friend who gets yeah. the full Stride. That's right. This issue also has free downloads of two of my favorite adventures from the 4E era, Cross City Race which I always think is a really good way to look at uh, what it could be like to sort of run through an urban environment and how you can make that interesting, a chase mm-hmm. scene in an urban environment. Mm-hmm. And Owlbear Run, which is written by Chris Townsend. I love his design, and Chris Perkins. And that is also a race where you're trying to get through uh, riding a, a cart pulled by an, an owlbear competing against other such racers. Mm-hmm. And these are two very fun adventures that, you know, if you're into designing, you should take a look at, or if you just want to, you know, run something very fun, yeah. take a look at those. Again, free downloads of those. The issue has an emphasis on Theros as well. And so these things are seen as sort of competitive mm-hmm. things that you could steal and put into a Theros campaign, which is actually a pretty fun idea. Nice. There's also a free copy of Jeff Stevens' Happy Jack's Fun House, which is oh, a nice. great horror-themed adventure mm-hmm. by Jeff Stevens. And there is a cute cardboard cutout of a snowy owl there. So a lot in Dragon Books. No, no finger puppets, but maybe you could take that cardboard cutout and wrap it around your finger. <laughs> yeah, you could there do that. All right, nice. Uh, I wanted to bring to everyone's attention a blog quickly here. Um, Gnome Stew is one of those RPG blogs that have been around forever. They've won many Ennies. And they don't talk about D&D specifically all the time, but they talk about RPGs in general. And one came up by Di, D-I, no other name given, that I thought was pretty intriguing because it talks about changing up campaigns by changing campaign rules. You know, it it talks about when you play certain games like D&D, all the rules are there and you as the DM can't really do much about that. The, The players have access to them. You're going to give them usually access to whatever tools, rules they have at their fingertips so in order for you as the dm to really take control of your campaign you sometimes need to create your own campaign rules and that can either be house rules or it can be giving access or taking access away to the players of certain rules to give your campaign the feel that you want it to have and you know this is something that you always cover when you run a campaign in your session zero to talk about what you want the campaign to be. But I really take this to heart, this this advice that Di gave, because it's so important to me, especially this long into a the life cycle of, of, a, uh, of a rule set, that the more access to rules the players get, the more watered down campaigns can become and the yeah. more ubiquitous, right? Because now there are bugbear rules for playing bugbears. Now everyone's going to want to play a bugbear, even if this campaign that world that you're in never had bugbears or bugbears were the enemies of, of civilization for centuries and centuries and centuries. And now, well, players are like, but I want to play a bugbear. And, you know, it, it can it can change the way that campaigns feel. So just go on over to Gnome Stew and look at your campaign rulebook. And just get to take take to heart uh, the sentiments of of that blog post. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. It's it, it's almost like another layer that can help focus all of your campaign together. Right? Like if you were to say something like, "All right, we're going to run Tomb of Annihilation," all the players will be from Chult. Mm-hmm. So I want you to make character choices that fit within that. Right. That's actually going to bring the party together a good deal if you do something like that. Yeah. 
and I mean, it's the same mindset that I went into anyway when thinking about Oracle of War, you know, the Eberron adventure uh, campaign for Adventurous League. Now, I, I wanted it to feel like Eberron, not like we're going to take every rule that's been released so far and shove it into Eberron, even if it doesn't fit. Yeah. And I understand you know, players have their own desires, and that's, that's okay. Uh, and in some campaigns, your home campaigns, you can just say what your desire will tailor it that way. In a worldwide campaign, you can't give in to the desires of every single player because there's 100,000 of them and their desires are going to be all over the place, including yeah. contradicting each other. So it's just just an interesting thing uh, for, for me as a, as a game designer and as a DM. So we have uh, an interesting product from a friend of ours, Newbie DM's Spell Templates for Virtual Tabletops. Newbie DM, Enrique, is one of these guys who's always posting on Twitter, has great ideas, and I'm always thinking to myself, why does he make that into a product? Mm -hmm. He did. And he started playing around with all these really cool templates, like creating, you know, getting really neat images and making them into template shapes and those kind of things that you can use on any virtual tabletop. And he's got it. 33 spell templates, nine generic area of effect templates, all for six bucks, plus the information on how to use them. In a roll twenty game, he has some good advice there about how to like add them in. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. Yep. And he's selling it directly from his website. It's also on drive through. Link is in the show notes. NewBDM.com. And finally, you know what's coming if you've been listening for the past few weeks. Miniatures. Miniatures. We don't have a great name for it, although Eric Mengi suggested some names like the Mini Minute, uh, the Life in Miniature, Max Your Minis, Min Max, Miniature Marvels. So yeah, you could just Pretend, take your favorite, and pretend we just announced that in a big booming voice with all sorts of sound effects. Because, or, yeah, you know, they can tell us, right? They can tell yeah. us which one to use. Yeah, so all you mini fans who love to hear Teos talk about what's new in the minis world, come up with your own uh, idea and shoot us a, a, a tweet or go to our forums and, and let us know what this segment should be called. But now I will step back and allow Teos to talk about minis. All right, Sean's already asleep. It's safe now, guys. <laughs> I'm watching him on video impersonate snoring. So I reviewed the WizKids minis. I completely geeked out and bought a whole bunch of these minis and I reviewed them on Twitter. So I've got a link in the show notes to the Rhyme of the Frost Maiden line where I slowly opened an entire case of minis. I am very happy with that. I heartily endorse uh, being excessive and getting a case of those minis or at least a brick. And also, if you're into what's coming in the future, that's the now of what's out. But in the future, uh, WizKids employee and all-around cool person, VMuse, showed off upcoming minis for, from the new set that's going to come out called Fans and Talons on the YouTube channel that WizKids uses. The things that I loved, there is sold on its own a purple worm gargantuan special mini that looks just gorgeous. And then they revealed some of the minis that are in the set. From the ones that I saw, I love the flail snail. I actually want to have six of those and somehow rig little mounts for them so that everybody in the adventure at some point would have to ride on flail snails. That's how good that mini looks. Mm -hmm. There is a tri-drone from the uh, you know, monodrone to a drone, tri drone. Yep. And a huge T-Rex that does indeed have its mouth open so you can put a figure in it. Oh, yeah. And one thing I noticed, they, they are using the translucent bases that we saw in the Icewind Dale set are now here to stay. And that's great because it lets you see the Dwarven Forge or a colored battle map that you have underneath the mini. That's kind of cool. Instead of just being the usual black color that bases are for minis. This Fangs and Talons is actually an in-between set. So it's not tied to any specific release. But sometimes we see in these sets something that is actually, you know, pointing at something in the future. And, and if I look at these minis, that the ones that at least have been announced so far, I see some planar minis in here, a fair bit of planar minis. And I wonder whether that indicates anything. Are you, saying, are you saying that Planescape has just been confirmed? Confirmed. Confirmed. Yes. Well, no, I can't promise that, but I can promise 10% off of your first order because as I opened these boxes of minis, they came with a little pamphlet, like a little catalog type thing. It made me drool like I was 10 years old. And you can get 10% off your first order at dndmini.com with the code DND17. All smushed together. The Ds are go. capitalized. I don't know if that matters, but you can try it. Um, okay. So each, it's one per person. So everybody can use the code. And the first time you use it, you'll get 10% off your order. Nice. Thank you, Teos, for that. 
And now we are going to talk about our main topic, which is our part six of our introduction to Icewind Dale and look at Rime of the Frost Maiden. So Teos has a retraction. <laughs> for shame. It's for shame. It's not really that bad, but uh <laughs> but I did realize something important about avalanches that somehow I didn't see when I was looking over all of it. And that is an avalanche does indeed move 300 feet around, but it does so twice. Mm-hmm. It does it on initiative count 10 and zero, again, until it can not travel anymore. Right. Uh, that makes the scale even more enormous. So all the things I said are true. They're just kind of more true. Mm-hmm. Like if you put your characters in the middle of where this thing's going to come down and it is 600 feet away, you would have to move 100 feet in around 150 feet in around to escape, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's not happening. No. And then I did, I redid the math of seeing sort of how this works. And basically the short version of this is that if you assume a movement rate of 30, right? Or your speed of 30, mm-hmm. only a distance of 1500 feet away wow. has any drama to it. And then the drama is, did you roll above 10 on initiative? Right, right. You can otherwise... modify Yeah, otherwise it hits you. Yeah. And if, if you roll below 10 initiative, and if you're above 10, you can safely move away. So it's like such an on-off switch of whether it's dramatic or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can you can tweak this like, all right, if the party has vastly different move speeds or if they have some teleport or dimension door, you know, then maybe you can coax some drama out of this. But I'm not sure it's really meaningful. And so then the only thing that an avalanche kind of does mechanically, narratively for you is catching them in it. Mm-hmm. Because the avoiding is such an on-off switch. Unless you think your party really could give you some drama off of that, do you get out, do you not? Then really just, it doesn't just start them closer than 1,500 feet to it right. and know that they're going to be in it and go through that experience. And that's kind of what I'd recommend for avalanches is play by the rules, start them closer than 1,500 feet. They're mm-hmm. going to be in it. They're going to dig themselves out. And after you've done that once, I would not do that again. Right. From then on, I would do like we were talking about in an earlier episode, and I would just come up with some different avalanche-like mechanics, right? And you can look at things like what we did with mudslides in our Jungle Treks product that Eric Meng and I wrote, or just come up with some different mechanic, use some of the things that we see in uh, 10-00 or 10-01 AL Adventures, just come up with your own new way, because this particular mechanic is very limited in what it can offer you. Right. Or, or along, I mean, basically this is what you said, but use it as a setting and not as an, an encounter in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, have, have the monsters get caught up in it as well. That will make the combat interesting, even though the avalanche itself is just sort of roll these checks until you escape. Yeah. 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 Okay. So now that we've got our avalanches all sorted, <laughs> we can get on to the 10 towns. So we've gone over the starting quests, and now we're going to talk about each of the 10 towns, which have their very own town quests. And is there anything you want to talk about the towns before we get into each one specifically? So one thing is, you know, we spend all that time talking about exploration. And one of the things that's interesting is you get this travel time between towns. So each town will say it's this far away from these other places that are near it. And it makes me wonder, like, so is the idea that there's no exploration mechanic being used? The whole book seems to be written as if they don't quite understand the exploration rules or don't want to use them. Right. But it seems so inhospitable that it seems perfect for exploration. So it's a little unclear. And I think that really means that it's up to you, the DM, to decide, am I just going to use these travel rules that are given? It costs, you know, takes X days to get between these two places. Or do you want to make it a bit more like a hex crawl? And yeah, you know sort of where it is, but this is a dangerous environment and you can get lost or find things or whatever. And that's going to be up to you. Okay. Um, You also find new maps of each of the towns. The art's really cool. Color, beautiful, nice art. These have changed a tiny bit from the maps that you find in Legacy of the Crystal Shard, uh, which is a D&D Next product, so early 5e. Those maps sometimes offer a few extra things, sometimes are lacking a new thing, but it can be useful to look at those maps. You, by the way, can find them online, though I I still think the product is worth uh, picking up Mm -hmm. because there is actually a lot less information per town compared to what is in the Legacy of Crystal Shard product. So if you want to ultra DM this thing and pull in a lot more lore and NPCs and things like that, 
consider picking up that resource because you'll get more to add there. All right. So with that, we will tackle each of the 10 towns individually, starting with Bremen. Teos, you are going to be our tour guide through Bremen. All right. Well, step along with me. Uh, watch your step, in fact, because uh, there is a lot of ice here. This is a place that's known for its harbor, known for its seasonal floods. But that is no more because the harsh winter has actually frozen over all of the harbor. So to get to where the boats are, the boats are further out and you walk on the long frozen lake. You would normally have this really rich soil for a nice growing season. But um, because of this old change in temperature, none of that is around. The town has a friendliness of three snowflakes. So it's very friendly, very low, only one services and two comfort. The population is 150, which is half of what used to be in Legacy of the Crystal Shard. And I, I like to do this comparison because Legacy of the Crystal Shard is really only like four years ago mm -hmm. at, at its shortest. And so what it really means is there's been a drastic change due to the rime appearing, right, in this everlasting cold. So half the population is left. It was founded by dwarves. It's on the west bank of the big lake known as Maradwaldan. And there is a Buried Treasures Inn location that has a story hook around Chardolin, uh, which we talked about a few episodes, the, the dark opal-like substance, like, like hard ice that you can mine. So the innkeeper's son, her son was uh, got lost and came back with a shard of this stuff. Two tieflings showed up shortly after, and they wore amulets also made of this stuff. And the son left with them offering very little explanation. So that kind of gives you a little hook that later can play out later on. And the quest here is called Lake Monster, where shield dwarf Grinsk Barrelbore tries to hire you to fish. And as you're doing this, a half-elf called Tally shows up and warns them, the, the characters, about this lake monster and says that Grinsk is being terrible by possibly getting him to be eaten by this lake monster and wants help studying this, this lake monster. So you kind of have this fun dual quest business with the half-elf wanting you to look at the lake monster, the shield dwarf wanting you to go just grab fish and doesn't care whether you die or not. <laughs> and so you set out on, um, on this boat to go fish. There's a part where you sort of dodge some ice flows, feel sort of skill check-like, and you then fish by rolling on a table. There's some fun events in this table. I like that. And the monster is actually an awakened plesiosaurus. <laughs> and you roll to determine how it acts. Uh, so what its disposition is towards you. You could possibly scare it off, or you might even think to talk to it, though maybe it's written it's a little hard to to for those options to come up. So I think that's where this maybe could use a few DM hints to help you think through it. So if you're gonna run this, think through how you might want some possible, you know, some hints to come across to the players so that there are different possibilities for how it plays out. If you do get fish, you get payment from Grinch, and any notes that you make, you then give to Tali. You do not have to kill the lake monster or anything like that to receive the reward. Okay. Did you want to talk about the elder? Yeah. So one of the interesting things here is there's this whole piece written in the background about how the town speaker, who is this elder person, absentmindedly wanders into the wild periodically. And so you just think, well, that's going to come out somewhere. And no, <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> At least not yet. No, at least not yet. All right. So the next town we're going to look at is Britain Shander. On the scale of one to three snowflakes, it has threes in friendliness, services, and comfort. It is the most populous of the 10 towns at 1,200 people. And it is pretty much the metropolis of the 10 towns. The only one that's not on a lake, it's walled and gated. And it is sort of central to the other 10 towns, making it a hub of trading for not only those coming to Icewind Dale from the south, but for people traveling within and among the tent house. Teos made a note here that there is a NPC named Macritus that is clearly a nod to Macready, the character played by Kurt Russell in the thing back, uh, the one made in the 1980s. The movie, yeah. Yep. So, Bryn Shander itself, they give you a few locations of note. One is a smithy called Black Iron Blades, which is kind of, it's humorous in the sense that the blacksmith isn't that good, or at least the people from Bryn Shander treat him like he is not a great blacksmith. 
So if they see someone walking around with goods made by this blacksmith, they they will mock you uh, for buying it from him. You know, it's sort of like if you're a local and you see someone going to the chain store rather than the expert craftsman right. that you know, you sort of mock them as tourists. That's that's what happens here. There is a house of the morning lord, which is a shrine to a monitor, the sun god. And this calls out the lore discrepancy between Lathander, who is the god of dawn and rebirth, and Amanator, who is the later, yet earlier, yet later god uh, in the Forgotten Realms. So it's kind of almost an internal joke. Uh, yeah. as, as the gods have changed over the years, uh, Lathander and Amanator kind of get interchanged. And so here you are specifically told why there is a difference between the two. In the attic of the House of the Morning Lord, there is a renter named, I got to say this right, Kaber Nabernacher, who is the quest giver for the uh, for a quest. Clearly an elf, right? Yes, <laughs> clearly. Uh, yeah. the, the other location given is the North Look, which is an inn and tavern run by a retired adventurer named Scramsax, who, being an adventurer himself, will cut hurting adventurers a break until he asks them to pay up with interest. So it's, he's, you know, he's one of those who will say, Oh, I'm sorry here. Have a loan or, or, Oh, you're, you look like you're in trouble here. Have, have a week of room and board. And then, Oh, by the way, the 10 gold pieces that you owed me for that, it's now 20 gold pieces. And sitting above the mantle in the North look is old bitey, a ferocious knucklehead trout who killed many an angler and is now stuffed on the mantle. And it's been enchanted to sing. So this is the proverbial fish on the mantle that you push the button yeah. and it, it sings. Uh, you've got your very own in the form of old bitey. Fantastic. Yeah. So the quest here is called Foaming Mugs. And you it's a fetch quest with a twist. There were iron ingots on a caravan being brought to Brinchander. The dwarves that were uh, bringing the ingots got attacked, and they they fled. So they want the adventurers to go back and reclaim these iron ingots. What happens, though, is the uh, players get there. Oh, first of all, in the text itself, it says, okay, here are the dwarves that hire you. It gives, you know, who they are and what they have. And then it says, if the characters kill the quest givers... <laughs> And and I just I not not much surprises me in seeing d written D and D or RPG stuff anymore. I've seen pretty much everything, and I did a double take, and I was like, really, these good merchants in this town, or these good uh, dwarven, basically ironmongers in this town, hire you to go out. They're not going with you, right? They send you out, so they're just going to stay here in town. And it, it needs to tell you what happens if you kill them. Wow. I don't, whoever wrote that, I'm sorry that your yeah. players. <laughs> You've suffered greatly. We're very yes, sorry. Yes. We feel your pain. Uh, so hopefully we don't need that in every encounter or quest we have. Uh, if the players kill the quest giver. Uh, so when the players go out, if they accept this quest within uh, two miles, of the sled area, a blizzard descends for 24 hours. And then it just says, see blizzards with no mechanical or narrative consequences for success or failure. Uh, so either just ignore that or give consequences for success or failure. Cause otherwise it's just the typical get lost in a blizzard, wander around for a while. As we say in the misdirected Mark uh, family, just get to the blank and monkey. Uh, just, <laughs> just get there. So when they do find the sled's location, it's gone. A dead dwarf remains there, as do prints leading away from the area. So you know this is where the dwarf was killed. You know that the sled was here. Now it's gone. And what, what happens now is a, a lost chance for exploration. There's a chance to have some exploration and consequences for either great success, great failure, or somewhere in between. But instead, there's just a few checks, but you automatically follow where the sled went. There, there's no there's no drama. There's no conflict. It's just boom. There you go. So, again, uh, if you can think of a way to 
give a bonus for some successful survival checks to track. If you can think of some penalties that you might give for unsuccessful, have those bear fruit in the next encounter. Yeah. So then you get to, you catch up to the goblins who stole the, stole the ingots. And it's interesting and weird and problematic because the way it's presented, the goblins are having this sled pulled by two polar bears that they've sort of beaten into service. And so as it's, as it's shown, it says, you know, the, uh, the goblins, there's a trained hawk that's looking around. There's a one-eared goblin boss, six goblins, two goblins stayed behind, and then two polar bears. And unless you parse that out carefully, that looks like the, the encounter. That looks like everything happening at once. But as you read further, you realize that these are really two separate groups. One is further away pulling the sleds. The other is on this really weird cart that's like a, a mini tower almost. So if you if these if your characters are even second level and you just unleash all these goblins, the goblin boss and the polar bears on on your party, you're going to kill them. So just read it carefully through because it's it's interesting what can happen. It's just not presented in the clearest way. And and right, the bears will not attack unless you attack them first. And even then they don't want to. They just want to get away. They can be turned on the goblins. So. Yeah, I, th- I think this is another case where it's great if the DM ahead of time thinks they're all right. Yes, there are these bits that can be activated, and and my job when I run this mm-hmm. is to provide opportunities for the characters to, to to see that there there is something that can be interacted with, right. and then maybe that maybe that happens right. So if so, and any character is naturey in some way, a druid or a ranger, right? Mm-hmm. They might get you know have them make some checks to realize these polar bears really aren't happy. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. They chafe at the harnesses that are on them. They they look as angry at you as they do at the goblin. Right. And then you kind of see what now there's something they can do with that. Right. Or there's some distances involved in that battle that can be interesting. So, you know, having somebody who's more tactically minded, make an assessment to see how what options are there. There's some things you can do with to help out the characters and make it a more make, activate these interesting pieces that are here. Right. Right. And the other thing that's important about this is these goblins come from an area called Karkolok. And Karkolok is a fortress that is detailed later in the adventure. And you want to be careful because in the tactics, it says that the goblin boss will set fire to the wagon and flee into the tundra uh, to get away from being caught or killed. If they track her, she will lead them directly to this fortress, which you may or may not want to have happen this early in the adventure. So just be careful with that little tidbit as well. And this is clearly written in a sandbox style. So, you know, the, in some ways, if you want to embrace chaos, you could go to this place that's, you know, for higher level characters. <laughs> and that's up to you if you really want to see that happen. But um, but it also could be a short and rough ending yeah. and unsatisfying experience if they were to do that. And and uh, just another small weird uh, inconsistency, the dwarves offer fifty gold pieces per character to go out and get these ingots. So if say you have five characters, that's two hundred and fifty gold pieces. They're they're paying for you to go out and get one hundred and fifty gold pieces worth of ingots. So it's I maybe they are desperate to fulfill their contract, so therefore they're willing to lose a hundred gold to make sure that the ingots get delivered to where they need to be. But they other... pay you 250 to get 150 worth of ingots. Yeah, that's not good. Right. Uh, and again, the, the only thing I could think of is they're, they're honorable, right? They, this town needs these ingots. They need them to make something. So, all right, we're going to fulfill our contract. We've already lost money. We're, we're just going to make sure it gets done right. But it's just one of those weird things that, especially if you're an adventure designer, think it through. And I'm not saying that, you know, a lot of things get changed in editing. A lot of things get changed in development. And sometimes these these things happen. So this isn't necessarily one person's fault. And it's not even that big a deal. It's just one of those things that you look at and you're like, wait a second. I tend to think that the way to do this is it's worth 150 gold to the characters if the characters are to try to sell it. Right. Because you've got a bunch of ingots. You don't know where to go with that to get the right market. 
but the dwarves know how to get their full value. That's probably the way I'd explain it. Yeah, and and that's to them, it's worth more. Right, and, and that's fine too. So overall, it's not it's it's a pretty straightforward quest. Go here, track there, and boom, you're done. It's one of those combats, though, as Teo said, you need to think it through. Maybe don't make it a straight combat, but you definitely need to think how you're going to present it to the characters. All right, should we go on to Caradineval? Let's do that. So Caradineval is uh, only two snowflakes on friendliness and a single one in services and comfort. So this is a rough place. And I think of this place now, in, in this version of the adventure, as being a lot like when Lord of the Rings, when they arrive at Rohan, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, it's been taken over by Wormtongue. And and things are not as they should be, right? And everything's rough and no one's greeting you warmly. So the population is 100, which is down from 254 years ago. So a severe drop. This used to be a big rival town to Kyrkonig. I mean, I guess in theory it still is, uh, but it is clearly weakened now. And they had, uh, just four years ago, sort of worked together with against East Haven. But now it looks like the rivalry's back and there's no more unity with against the town of East Haven. Cairo is known for its keep. And there's some fun stories here about how it was built, but misused and a lot of orc ram sacking and stories of wealthy people making bad decisions. But <laughs> you still do have this one keep and then there's the ruin, ruin of a former watchtower around. And that keep is going to be central to the experience that takes place here. There used to be a ferry that's gone now. Um, place definitely has the feeling of being of falling apart. And the idea is that when the characters get here, they will feel like this is a dark place. People are watching them with an uneasy, with an uneasy stare. Moods are bad, but people won't exactly tell you what's going on, though they all sort of know. And the secret that's that's there, that the the secret no one's saying out loud, is that there is a cult of devil worshippers that are now running the town, and they've taken over the Kyre, the keep. These devil worshippers serve Levistus, who's the ruler of Stygia, the fifth layer of hell. Mm-hmm. And Levistus reached out to some dying villagers, saved them from dying in the wilderness, and in exchange requested devotion. The cult is opposed to the Dwergar because those are allied with Asmodeus. There's not a lot you do with that here, but there's a little bit that takes place, and the players can start learning about this uh, Dwergar aspect of the adventure that will come on later. And one thing that's interesting is, is this can be a little frustrating. So I probably would not start here. Because it's one of those places, it's always hard when you have situations where nobody wants to tell the characters what they need to know. Mm-hmm. So now you role play that, which ends up probably just being frustrating. Like you feel like they want to tell you something, but they won't, right? So that's something to think about as a DM is how to make it not frustrating, but play off. And yeah, how to do that is, is hard. There, there isn't a lot of, of advice here. And they may want to go to the Kyre. And if they do, what they'll find is they're going to get turned away. The only way they don't get turned away is that either if one of them has a secret called Runaway Author, then that character will be allowed in. If they have taken care of the Dwergar and killed them off, they'll be allowed in. Or if they did quests in Chapter 2 involving uh, Nildar Sunblight or his brother Durth, then they'll let you in. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get in, but they're not just going to allow you in. So if you want to get in because you've heard somehow that, you know, these are devil worshippers, you will have to raid the castle. And that could be a ton of fun. There are a number of suggestions given, which I do like. This is good design that, you know, they didn't say what doesn't work. They give you ideas of what does work. Mm-hmm. NPCs can help. Uh, and, and actually throughout the Kyra, there's some really neat NPCs that can sort of help you or be neutral. And that's a lot of fun, I think, for the DM. That's not just, you know, battle from room to room, but interesting things. Like there's a young servant in room C7 that you know can be won over. Some really neat opportunities there. Inside, these cultists wear amulets made of chardolin, and each day there is a one in six chance to force a DC, I think that's 10, uh, charisma save, or you become lawful evil. So there's a thing to think about for your campaign. You know, Do you want your players to possibly wear these amulets and have that happen to them? Because one in six is no joke, per day. I mean, there are going to be a lot of days in this adventure. So, and the thing is, if you become lawful evil, after nine days, only a wish spell reverses this. Mm -hmm. Personally, I would not want this in my campaign. So I would probably immediately have them have 
really weird thoughts and, and bad feelings. And, and they know that wearing this is off and wrong. And I would probably reinforce that strongly so they don't want to wear them right. because I wouldn't want to mess with this. So that's a, that's something for you to think about how you, maybe you love that concept. Yep. Or if you don't use flaws instead of alignment. That's a good way to do it too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sort of yeah, the, the way that other adventures have, right? Like Curse of Strahd has these mm -hmm. aspects that, you know, things like that. If you straight on just bust into this castle with a lot of loud, you know, obvious approach, this is going to be a castle crawl with a ton of foes who will come at you. Twelve cultists, two cult fanatics. It's, you know, that would be too much. But what I do like is that you're probably not going to do that because that's pretty obviously bad. Um, and, and the scenario is pointed out that way a fair bit. And so it kind of plays out like classic scenarios like the moat house in Hamlet from Temple of Elemental Evil where I have fond memories of us coming up with ways to trick cultists. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the DM at one point ruled that the bodies that we had hidden in our interview room, where we were <laughs> interviewing the cultists for promotion, uh, were now visible above the line <laughs> of the bed. And thus, hey, wait, wait, that's Bob, he's dead. You know, and yeah. we finally went to a battle after much trickery. Nice. Um, but there's some neat touches. There's a kennel boy that can be bribed into helping. In room C4, there's a the secret door is spotted automatically by any character who examines that section of the wall. So mm -hmm. there's no DC. You have to say you're examining it. So I thought that was very old school. Yeah. There's some interesting things like an armory that has quivers that hold 50 arrows instead of 20. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Like someone has this technology. <laughs> right. Yes. Why don't they do it all the time? Advanced quiver technology. Advanced quiver technology. There is the if you remember in Bremen, we talked about the innkeeper's son that had gone missing. Well, Cora's son is here, Quarwar Mulfoon is their easy to say name. Uh, but there's no guidance on how to resolve this, and I think that's a bit of a missed opportunity. You know, can he be talked back? It just says he's brooding and pessimistic. Well, okay, so you know, there's not a lot here, but I, I think that this is worth giving some thought as a DM and saying, all right. If they're going to encounter him, how would they recognize that this is Cora's son? Mm -hmm. So maybe you want to backtrack and have given something in Bremen, you know, some distinguishing mark or something like that so that she can, so that her son can be recognized. And then how can you play this off? Like, personally, I would make this brooding pessimistic thing into the NPC that they save that then tags along, but they hate to have with them, right? Like, right. Or maybe yeah. it's super fun. Like, maybe he, he just starts, you know, like uh, he'd been taken in by these cultists and now he's, really into one of the characters right and starts yeah. emulating them that could be fun yeah take the cue from the players if possible to see how they want or how they do that and then roll with it but you know anything works as long as it's not just he remains brooding and pessimistic uh in, in this room for the rest of the adventure right it's like a it's like one of those terrible video games where you interact with someone and then you know four days later game time wise a year later how i play you go back and they're still there saying the same thing right that's what yeah. you don't want <laughs> true or that you just can't distinguish them from anyone else in the castle so you just shove a sword through them because right. hey cultist right 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 another one that's that's really neat i like this design a lot is hethel she is a cultist so old she's harmless and so she's just sitting in a room like this old grandmother but she can see the future and she knows when she's going to die and she knows how it relates to the characters. So she tells the characters this information. Um, I wish there was a little more here that, that didn't just play off. You know, kind of what you said about video games, it feels a little bit like that text box that plays out. Right. And then it has to be done. And I wish there was a little more dynamic here mm -hmm. where the characters could do more than just get her bullets, right? Right. Get her information. Yeah. When you find the speaker, who has been, you know, holed up in, in the care by the cultist. He is in the process of using his chamber pot. <laughs> I think that's a genius move, yeah, right? that's great. Uh, there isn't a lot of information here. You can find more in the Legacy of the Crystal Shard product, but it's, you know, he does want to be rescued, and uh, so you can do so. And then there is another interesting angle here that's sort of hard on the DM, which is Avarice. Um, there is a miniature for her, by the way, one of the WizKids minis. She is this paranoid member of the Arcane Brotherhood, and it's been told by Levistus, the ruler of hell, to work with the party so that they can lead her to the Neveri's lost city she seeks. She has two gargoyles who are out of sight outside uh, and can come to her help if there's a fight. But she is CR7. Mm. <laughs> so okay. you don't want to fight with her. 
And you have to, so it's it's this strange idea that she's sort of like, the characters are going to meet her. She's going to make sure they don't fight her because she doesn't want to kill them because she thinks she needs them. Mm-hmm. But doesn't want to, I think the idea is she doesn't come along either. So it's sort of a weird, you, you have to somehow orchestrate a weird meeting. Maybe she'll briefly accompany you, but then she's going to somehow monitor you, I guess, through the gargoyles. Uh, and so, so, you know, think through this about how you want to make sure that there isn't a fight and that it feels, it should hopefully feel interesting and mysterious enough that the characters are interested in her, but no, they can't do anything with her right now. Yeah. And, and I think this probably brings up the point that there is a lot more to this adventure than what we're covering. We haven't necessarily read that far yet. So we don't know how to use her, assuming that she is going to show up later. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is because she's CR seven, you don't want her to like join them and dominate every fight because right. she's going to be way cooler than PCs. So yeah. I think the mo- what makes the most sense here, there isn't much guidance here, but to to have her sort of stay in touch. I mean, maybe she walks out, accompanies them for a couple of, of corridors worth of travel so that she can show off that she's awesome, and then she can just vanish, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and be enigmatic that way. The final line in this session suggests that she goes to ground, takes over the Black Sword cult, which is what all these um, cultists are a member of, and then she'll be seen again in Chapter 8. And mm-hmm. so presumably the gargoyles are spying on the party. There you go. And with that, we are finished with Care Dineval, and we are finished with this episode. So next time, we will finish up the last seven of the Ten Towns and the quests Woo-hoo. that go with them. As always, thank you so much for listening. We hope you are enjoying our walkthrough of Rime of the Frostbade, as well as the news we give. If you would like to help us through our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash MMP. Or if you can't and just want to spread the gospel of Down with D&D, you can spread the news far and wide of what Teos and I are doing uh, on your social media links. Speaking of social media, Teos, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter at AlphaStream. And I have a blog at alphastream.org, and I sometimes hang out at the Misdirected Mark forums. Mm -hmm. You can find me on those same forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Mr. Abadia, what are we going to do now? I mean, we're supposed to go full strad. Kill kill full strad. (laughs) Absolutely. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?